All right, let's pray. Father, to you belong all the glory and honor and praise, both now and forever. Help us to understand more of you, that our praise and our worship and our love for you would grow. Um, the depth and the riches and the wisdom of the fear of you is, is unending. And so let us, let us continue to dive into this knowledge that you would make us more like your son who loves you completely and eternally. So strengthen us, Lord, by this word today. We need it. Help us in the way. Lord, use this to continue us on the path, refresh us on the path, or even to take us out of a place that we're stuck on the way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We look at verses 13 and 14 today as a beginning of the application, so to speak, of what has been taught up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus begins to conclude the sermon. And so I thought it'd be helpful this morning if we begin by recapping all that he has taught us up to this point. Because the application that begins in verses 13 and 14 is that we would remember and be prepared to walk along the narrow way. In other words, that the path to life is hard. That following Jesus is labeled as difficult when you live in this world and in this flesh. But that doesn't mean that it's not good. In fact, that doesn't mean that it's not the way. It just means that it is different or countercultural to the place that you exist right now. The things that he's taught up to this point, the characteristics of what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen in the kingdom of God, will be the rule of thumb, will be normalcy uh, in heaven. But right now, they are the, it is the difficult way to walk. And what he says, it's the hard way to walk. And that is not to say what Jesus says, that his burden is not light and his yoke is not easy. But it is to say that a battle continues in this world to live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. That we're not completely set free right, from having to battle the flesh and sin and the devil just yet. It's coming. And if you follow this way, you'll get there. And what may appear to be easy, what may appear to be even sometimes good or enticing to us now, uh, most of the time is a good signal that it is not the way to life. So everything we have read from chapter 5 up until verse 12 at this point is not natural for human sinners, which makes it difficult to go against your, your desire, to go against your flesh, to go against your natural 
makeup, so to speak. But if you're going to follow the narrow way, you have to exist from a place of understanding the fall and that it has affected you, not only as a human being in this world, but as a spiritual being who will live forever in one state or the other. And it is really important to know, especially from the outset of being invited to follow Christ, that you understand that following Christ is not an invitation to an easier life. It's not an invitation to be blessed by worldly standards or to become um, more of some sort of greatness in the world. In fact, the call to follow Christ, as most would point out, especially Jesus, is a call to die. It's a call to lay down your life. It's a call to submit completely to his lordship, trusting that the way that he says to go, the way that he leads, is actually better than the way that you are invited to in the world. And so to, to trust God is to acknowledge that. It's to acknowledge that he alone knows what is perfect and holy and righteous and fruitful. He alone demonstrates, illuminates, illustrates the way of life. So even when following Christ looks detrimental to your health, to your, to your bank account, to your life, Faith means that you believe that even against all of that, it is still better to follow Christ. So he labels this as the narrow way, right? Or the narrow gate. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter, it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, if we're going to talk about following Christ being the hard thing, the narrow gate to enter through, let's look at maybe how he's explained that up until this point. In chapter 5, verses 2 through 16, you have characteristics of the blessed, right? And a lot of those things don't kind of line up with what we naturally think to be blessed in this world. Blessed are those who mourn, right? Blessed are the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And that all kind of caps off in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5, right? Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you. Hmm. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're Blessed according to the kingdom of God if that is how the world recognizes you or treats you based on how they recognize you. And then we come across this, this idea, these examples from Christ himself in regards to how he fulfills the law, how we engage in anger and lust. That perfect righteousness comes from the heart. As characteristic of only Jesus. He's explaining that it's not that you don't do these things. It's that you have to not even desire them from the heart to be pure. 
and full of righteousness. And all of us are like, at that point, just kind of wrecked because we don't know any other way but to have these feelings or these thoughts sometimes. But, but Jesus is saying, no, your, your father demands a perfect righteousness that comes from the heart. So great that you don't commit adultery. Great that you don't kill people. But what's in here? That's what you're being judged off of. So that's not only difficult, that's impossible. Then you get to verses 31 through 48, and we have a description here of a, a, a complete hatred that we might be full of. Lacking mercy and grace and called to love our enemies. That is not characteristic of what it means to exist in this world, but it is characteristic of kingdom children. Love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, give to those who ask and demand from us. But that's not the way that we're taught to live here. Right? We're, we're taught to retaliate and fight back, and maybe there is uh, definitely an argument for self-defense in the Bible, but, but there's so often times when we are to love enemies. But then you get to chapter 6, and in verses 1 through 18, we find that our good works are not to be performed for men but in private communion with your heavenly Father who sees in secret and will reward you. That any gain you try to get from having a relationship with God will not come in the form of being praised and blessed by men, but will, be, uh, will come in being rewarded by your Father who enjoys a private communion with you at all times. It's, it's not a pharisaical holiness that Jesus was preaching against in the first century. It is it's, it's private devotion towards him. It's, it's him who knows your heart and knows in secret and you understand that about him and so you are able to pour out your heart before him. That you don't desire to be seen by other men in your holiness. You just desire to be with your father. And it's believing that there is a eternal benefit in that there is even a temporary uh, a temporal a drawing near that is the reward that you desire far and above being praised by other men for your holiness there's no reward in that there's only a promise of reward from the father who sees in secret and rewards then in verses 19 through 24 of chapter 6 we see that our main and major investment belongs in the eternal kingdom of our one master and father. That to serve anybody or any other master or thing with our time, with our resources, with our devotion, with our worship, is absolutely unfounded in the kingdom of God. You have one Lord and one master. You can't serve a different master Monday through Saturday, and then serve the Lord on Sunday. No, you serve the Lord first and foremost, 24-7. And everything that you do, the way that you spend time and money and gifts are to be oriented into making kingdom investments, spreading the gospel, helping 
those in need, ministering with that gospel at all times and making sure that everything that you've been given is given in that effort. And of course, we know verses 25 through 34 that worry for daily needs is a mindset of unbelievers. Our focus is on the kingdom and his righteousness first and foremost. You are, I'll say it this way, not allowed to worry about daily needs if you are a born-again believer. You must trust your Father who cares for you in a way that you can hardly comprehend, and you must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So we fight even the urge to get all bent out of shape about even the needs we have to simply live. And we trust, and we go forward in that day in service to His kingdom, and seeking what it means to be righteous, trusting that the needs will be provided for the mission at hand. You talk about having to fight uh, our natural tendencies. That's a big one. Then you get to chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Personal holiness is of first concern before the sins of others. We don't like to do it in that order. We like to point out the sins of others first and foremost. We like to talk about that. We like to place ourselves in comparison to their sins while disregarding our own sins. But he, but he teaches here that the sins of others are to be dealt with only out of humble holiness with discernment and discrimination that comes only from God. So we want to rush in to point out at people's specks in their eyes or we want to rush in to point out how uh, people are screwing up or how they're not holy like we are. And he says, no, you must get from me the discernment to be able to, to speak into these things or to hear from me about the discrimination or the discretion you're used to not give away those things when you most want to speak about the unholiness you see in other people's lives. It has to be done through him and only can be done through him. And that first concern is your own holiness, which we don't like to deal with. Nobody likes to know they're a sinner. Nobody likes to know they've screwed up. Nobody likes to admit that they have failed. But you are called in the kingdom to deal with that first. Then we get to verse 12 of chapter 7. And we're told that to engage others and love them as yourself is to first understand how you have been and are loved by the Father. That is how you love your neighbor as yourself, by first understanding the love of God. And if you know the love of God in your own life, then you know how to um, obey the golden rule which is fulfilling the law and the prophets, Jesus says. You know how to do unto others what you would have them do unto you because you have seen how the Father has dealt with you. So everything up to this point 
calls us to understand the gospel and live in light of it, which totally goes against our flesh, which totally goes against our fallen human nature. But we're now called to realize and live in the understanding that we are at war, especially with our flesh. We're, we are called to see these teachings of Jesus as more than simply ethical ideas. We, we are called to realize that these are the words of life. He is directing us into a path that follows him into an eternal way of life, an eternal love, an, inter, an eternal understanding of what it means to live forever in his kingdom. And so now he's asking you to apply it, to actually come through the gate, actually live this way, right? We, we can sit here all day and cross our arms and listen to these things, but you've got to wake up hopefully tomorrow, and you've got to decide, if this is true and I trust what he says, then I must do what he says. I must live in holiness by the power of his spirit living within me. I must do what he said because he's my master. No longer the world, no longer my flesh. We have to speak like James tells us to speak, if the Lord wills. And certainly we know through this sermon up to this point what the Lord wills for your life. This is a description of his kingdom people called to look like that now. Listen to the way Peter talks about this to people who are experiencing what it means to, to go through the narrow gate and walk along the way even though they are paying dearly for it. Okay? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Jesus has instructed us up to this point about how to live, walk, follow in a way that is opposite the flesh. That when we once followed the flesh, we were led to death and destruction. But now this new way that leads to life. There's a war. And what are we at war with? Well, Peter says, the passions of your flesh. Because of sin. Because of the fall. Jesus himself says in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The, 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 the thrust of a spirit-filled life is, is living 
in your faith, which is an eternal hope for what is to come. An eternal understanding that transcends space and time. It's the same hope that we read about in Hebrews 11 in that uh, description of those men of faith. They're looking forward to something that goes beyond this world and beyond this time. And they are, um, they are living now in the hopes of that to come. They are functioning and operating and, and, and making decisions by faith. Not all the time, obviously. They screw up quite a bit, and so do we. But they are moving in that direction because they trust and hope in that, uh, something that is not yet, but already is. Did that confuse you? The kingdom of God has come, but the kingdom of God will not be fully actualized and realized until that great day of the Lord. When he comes to take us to where he has prepared a place for us. So we are constantly, as Christians, commanded to live with that view. That's Paul's view. He endures uh, the scorn of the world. That's Jesus' view. He endures the scorn of the world. So that, or in hopes of, what is to come. And faith is a full confidence and belief and trust in that which is to come. It's a full confidence and trust that God holds your eternal well-being, your life, your eternal reward, and that it is eternal. Understanding that this world and the things of it and the experiences of it are passing away, but there is eternal goodness to follow. And it's making decisions in light of that. It is living every day and every moment with the hope of heaven in mind based on the promises of God. That, 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 that becomes the, the reason why we do everything or don't do something. Don't try and find temporary relief when it would be harmful to our souls. It's why we follow God into hard things. It's why Jesus follows or goes to the cross because of the glory that is his at the right hand of the Father and those whom he will bring with him. So this is, this is the daily struggle, right? To live this way. Because we're deceived by the world. We're deceived by Satan who is a liar and a father of lies. And so I call it the deception of the easy, right? That, that wide gate, it's easy. But it leads to destruction. I was reading Proverbs 11 this week and just reminded through Proverbs just how we can never expect any good to come from following the flesh or following the ways of the world or being enticed by these things that are passing away, proving fruitless or temporary. You know, and in Proverbs 11, you, you just constantly have this reminder and comparison of, of, of what comes from the righteous, what they can expect, and what the wicked can expect, right? The righteous, Proverbs 11:8 is delivered from trouble, trouble, 
and the wicked walks into it instead. It's, and it goes on like this. So you don't have to spend very much time in the Bible at all to find that, that when you follow the easy way or, or when you're enticed by the immediate thing or the immediate pleasure, the thing that proves itself to be ungodly, you, you can expect destruction. You can expect it to turn sour very quickly. You can expect it to not satisfy at all, or at least momentarily. And so you're, we're easily deceived. Because that's the type of creatures that we are, and we kind of allow ourselves just to, just to be those creatures, those temporary creatures, and we think we only have temporary needs. We think we only have flesh. We don't think about spirit. We don't understand the actual spiritual realities at play because we can't see them. And in fact, if God doesn't open your eyes to them, you'll never see them. And you'll be a fleshly earthen vessel who will find destruction. So what is natural to us appears easy, enticing. But in the end, it leads to death and destruction. Therefore, fear God. Why do I say it that way? Because if you fear God, if you understand that he holds uh, life in his hands, if you understand that he sovereignly reigns with complete authority over all of the universe, everything that has been created, and if you understand that he reigns in complete righteousness and justice, and that he will... Uh, punish the wicked. He will destroy sin and evil. He's already destroyed death. Then you know that if you are labeled as that, wicked, sinful, he will destroy you. And so we fear the righteousness of God, but hopefully you're drawn to it because he invites his desire is that you would be drawn towards his goodness, that you would be drawn towards his righteousness, but naturally you won't be. You have to be awakened by his spirit to understand that at, that is actually good, that the blessedness he speaks of in Matthew 5, that's actually good. That's actually worth desiring. That's actually worth giving your life over to. Jesus says it best this way, do not fear those who kill the body, the temporary flesh, the thing that we see and can touch, right? But cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There's a reality to you as a created being that is more than just what's on the surface, right? Or what can be seen. You are not just the flesh you wear for a moment. You're something more. And everybody, I think, has that understanding, naturally, that there is more to this, that's more to my existence than my flesh, my body. And if there is, then what must be done with that? Or what is that? Or where does that come from? Or where is that going? We have to think in terms of these spiritual realities or we'll never see life, true life. 
But what is actually easy? Because we find throughout the Bible that when you turn to your flesh, you're always disappointed. It actually makes things harder for you to live that way. Well, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and you'll learn and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your what? Souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <laughs> in this sermon, Jesus is dealing with us as spiritual beings. Calling us at the end of Matthew 6 to not worry about our physicality, but to be more invested and interested in the soul. So let's talk about the truth of hard. We've already talked about this briefly, but you go out to go back to chapter 5. And in verses 2 through 9, you have the ways that one is deemed a blessed man. But then you have verses 10 through 12 that allude to further blessedness and being persecuted for those ways in verses 2 through 9. In other words, those are the hard things to be. poor in spirit? Who wants to acknowledge that they are a wretched sinner? But that's who you must be to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Who likes to mourn things? We like to ignore them, really, instead of mourn. Meek? Meek is not weakness. It's humble, gentle, strength under control, but we're told in this world to Take everything you get by force. The most aggressive one wins or becomes the leader. What about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Don't, don't you want to be popular? Don't you want to be well-liked by everybody? Don't you want to have fun? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, that sounds pretty uptight. Pretty prudish. But they're going to be satisfied, those people. Merciful? What? If somebody wrongs me, shouldn't they pay for it? Or do you trust vengeance to the Lord? Has he shown you mercy when you were an enemy? So it's not humanly possible for you to show mercy. But he does. So all these ways that make a person blessed, right? begin to be the things that the world hates. You know why? Because they're light. And the world exists in darkness. And when the light exposes the works of darkness, the darkness tries to overcome it, but Jesus says it cannot and it has not. It doesn't want to be exposed. And you simply existing as a follower of Christ walking along that way after you've gone through the narrow gate, offends a world that lives in darkness. I think that's one of the ways that you can communicate and apologetic about the legitimacy of the Christian faith, is that, look, these are the things that we are called to be. 
And when you see people persecuted for being characterized by these things, doesn't that strike you as odd? Shouldn't the world want people like that? Shouldn't the world want to see a world full of people that are merciful and gracious? No. Because it alerts them to the reality that they are not like that. And so they'll try and squash that or extinguish the light so that they don't have to be seen for what they are. Jesus promises that the way of following him will be hard. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Was Jesus persecuted? Yes. Will you be persecuted as you follow him? Yes. In some way or another, I mean, I don't think here in this country we fully get that. You, you do get it at times, sure. But when everything about you is so offensive to those who don't follow the way that they have to get rid of you, that's, that's what we're talking about. And that's how far we follow him. And also, that persecution under the sovereignty of God is good and used for our good. Because as we walk on the way, we are called to follow him. We're not the ones who pave the way. We're not the ones who know the way. But he's the way. And so here's what it does. Here's what it does for Paul. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you see Paul? He is hoping in the resurrection. And in the first letter to the Corinthians, he was telling them in verse, or chapter 15 that everything's based on that. And if we don't have the resurrection, then eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There, there is only flesh to live for and there is no hope beyond that. But since there is a resurrection, there is something beyond that. And so Paul endures relying on God because he knows God raises from the dead. And so that even if the sentence of death comes because Paul is walking in the way, so be it, he's going to receive the resurrection unto life. Because he's following the one who raises unto life. But he has to have that eternal trust, that eternal faith, that eternal perspective. So even the things that we experience now as the blessed, the, the hard things that come to us that seem so undeserved, are used by God to further strengthen us to depend on him in the way so that we stay on the way. And we'll talk about it in a little bit, what it looks like to fall off the way or to leave the way after the narrow gate. So, have hope in the hard things, in the hard way. There is much hope for us as we go this narrow way.
1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You have Peter and Paul and Jesus speak about the sufferings, the persecutions, avoiding the, the, uh, the wide way as so temporary that when we reach the eternal, it'll seem little. Right now, it's everything we know. So it's big, it's huge, it's in our face, we're consumed by it, we're broken by it, but it's little. You have to have faith in that as well. God will restore. He'll confirm that faith. He'll establish you in his kingdom. Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The stuff we have to experience as being those who follow Jesus, who go through that narrow gate, they're, they're just not worth comparing to what's coming. So the application of the sermon up to this point is to break from self. Trust your heavenly Father. It's easy to trust in ourselves. It's natural for us. To trust God goes against every natural instinct of a sinner. But to trust God is to confess that He's God. Simple as that. That he dwells in eternal goodness and perfection and he alone is to be trusted and feared beyond ourselves. We know which way we go when we lead ourselves or when we follow our flesh. We're not promised life in that way. He is the only one who shows the way to life. He is the only way to life. And if you believe that by faith, by a God who can be confidently trusted in, who's got a track record that is perfect and is to be hoped in for the future perfectly, then you can break from self. You can do what's unnatural because he'll give you the power to. But what I want to look at an illustration here. A lot of the men in the church went through Pilgrim's Progress, and some of you have read it, surely. But I want you to see one of these opening scenes from the Pilgrim's Progress. And just to set the stage here, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory written by John Bunyan uh, sometime in the 1600s, I believe. And John Bunyan was a, a simple pastor, a great man who spent a lot of time in prison for walking on the way, right? And he's, he's written this story in prison that explains the experience of the Christian life. And so all his characters in this allegory have names like evangelist and optimate or uh, obstinate and pliable and help and all these kind of things. That's how he names his character. So his main character is Christian. And Christian lives in the city of destruction, like all men do as they're born. But then Christian feels these burdens on his back and he begins um, to be... To, to be warned about the coming destruction on the city he lives in. And, and so he's helped to go through the gate and follow the way. And things happen along the way. But anyways, let me read this one scene to you. 
he comes across somebody named Evangelist, right? And Evangelist is going to show him where the way is. Evangelist pointed his finger over a very wide field. Do you see the wicket gate over there in the distance? The man squinted. No. Evangelist points the way to the wicked gate, and Evangelist asked, Do you see the shining light in the distance? Christian said, I think I do. Evangelist said, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly to it. If you do, you will see the gate. Upon arrival at the gate, when you knock, you will be told what you should do. In my dream, the man began to run. He had run far from his own door when his wife and children noticed what he was doing and cried out to him, Come back, come home. The man put his fingers in his ears and ran on. Life, life, eternal life. Do you, do you see that? that? That even at the begging of his own family, he's told to remain at the city of destruction, but Christian knows has been pointed to the way, and so even at that cry from his loved ones to stay in the city of destruction, he puts his fingers in his ears, and he counts the cost of following Christ as more valuable and more glorious than staying, even with his family in the city of destruction. He knows that that way will lead to life, life, eternal life. What happens quickly after is a couple of uh, Christians' neighbors named Obstinate and Pliable, they come, they see him running out to this wicked gate to go along this way to the celestial city, and they go out to beg him to come back and to tell him that his pursuits are worthless, and it is not worth going on that narrow way Obstinate calls them fools and goes back to the city of destruction. Pliable remains with Christian until they reach the slew of despond. Till things start getting a little sticky and hairy in the Christian life. Pliable counts the cost. It's not worth it to him, so he goes back to the city of destruction. And Christian remains in the slew of despond, but is eventually brought help. Brought out of the slew of despond continues on the way, in which he'll encounter a giant, in which he'll encounter lions, in which he'll encounter very difficult things. But at the end of it all, where does Christian end up? The celestial city. And he counts it all as worth it. You know, I struggled with how to conclude this because Romans 8 is, is Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Romans 8 is the born-again Christian life lived not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And isn't that what we're talking about? Romans 8, 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Isn't that what it is to, to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness to leave all earthly needs as the Father's burdens. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And who are we taught to fear but the one who is the sovereign of the universe? And isn't it him you'd want to please? And how do you please God? 
only through faith. That the way that he is telling you to go, the way that he is empowering you to go, is actually the way of life, even when it doesn't seem like it. Because you get to the end of Romans 8, and we're talking about things that that could possibly separate you from the love of Christ as you go on the way. What are those things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, that doesn't do it. In fact, in verse 37, through all these things we're more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. So listen, the way of life is explained to us in verses or chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. But you're not going to walk or live that way from the heart unless it's done through Jesus. So you're invited to come through the gate to get on the path that leads to life. You're invited into difficulty. You're invited to, uh, to uh, crucify the flesh along with as Jesus did. But you're promised a couple things in doing this. Number one, you're promised an eternal reward. You're, you're promised eternal face time with God. You're promised an eternal dwelling. And number two, you're promised in this very own gospel that he will never leave you nor forsake you along the way. That he'll remain with you at all times. In the Pilgrim's Progress, what, what Christian comes to find is that the Lord is always there. We're going to follow Jesus together and we're going to encounter really hard things. And, and we're going to be persecuted and hated for it at times. But he's not going anywhere. He's not leaving us. So why would we? And I would argue this, the more that you get to know him, the more you'll look forward to him as the reward at the end of the path. the more you'll value what is to come more than what is now. And you will be strengthened and established in the way. So that's my hope and prayer for you. And so follow the directions of Jesus there and enter the narrow gate. And by all means, brothers and sisters, let's help each other stay on the way. Pray to the Lord now and then we'll stand and sing together.